This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. Corey and the team at Aquarium Co-op have redefined the tropical fish and plant buying experience. Aquarium Co-op provides incredibly healthy fish, gorgeous plants, and top quality lights, food, and accessories at competitive prices. So how do I know this? Well, I'm fortunate enough to call them my local fish store where I've purchased many of the aforementioned items. Now you may not live in the greater Seattle area, but that shouldn't stop you from checking them out. Pay close attention. Listeners of this podcast can get 5% off AquariumCoop.com orders by using the promo code Aquarist5 at checkout. One more time, that promo code is Aquarist5. And if their retail operation wasn't enough, they bring exceptional video content through the Aquarium Co-op YouTube channel. I encourage you to check out the instructional how-to, travel, and fish room tour videos. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Lastly, be sure to share the Aquarius podcast with your fish nerd friends. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Friday, December 7th, 2018. My guest today is Scott Dowd. Scott is a conservation biologist at the New England Aquarium in Boston, Massachusetts. Scott studied at the University of Sterling, where he received his master's in science. His thesis paper was titled, Observations on the Cardinal Tetra Fishery with an Emphasis on the Measurement of Stress. Scott is currently the executive director of Project Piaba, and today Scott is going to share a little more about himself and the important work being carried out by Project Piaba. So Scott, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to share the story. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Scott. Um, so I always kind of like to open up and ask, how's the weather right now in uh, in Boston? Mm-hmm. Well, it's crispy cold, and uh, it wouldn't be unjustifiable for us to have snow, but we haven't had any yet, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Oh, man, I'm jealous. Like, I, I, being here in Seattle, we'll maybe get one or two snows a year, and it doesn't hang around for long. And, you know, me saying that I'm jealous of snow, I've never lived anywhere that actually snows a lot. So you're probably shaking your head like you're crazy, Randy. You don't, <laughs> you don't, don't, don't wish this upon yourself. Uh-huh. So, Scott, if you can go into your origin story, you know, how did, how did somebody that, you know, is the conservation biologist at the New England Aquarium in Boston, Mass., um, you know, you've obviously done scientific research and, and you know, you've got your formal education um, in fish. How did you get your start? Um, well, I consider myself extremely fortunate. I, I, I am just so grateful at, at a very early age, uh, this all became very clear to me. And, uh, and, and again, many years ago, I had this very clear understanding of this is, this is my purpose for being on earth. This is, this is what my life is about. And this is what I'm dedicated to. And I'll give you some of the background about some of the influences in the the equation that, that kind of led to this. Um, very tolerant parents was one thing. I was the youngest of uh, six kids, and by the time I came along, uh, I basically had no leash and was let loose to explore the world. And there was a pond very close to my house that I spent more time in than, than next to and uh, enjoying all the aquatic life there. I would ride my old uh, Schwinn Stingray over to uh, the local fish store, Barks and Bubbles, uh, where there was a, a really grumpy guy, kind of scary guy, running the uh, the. Sh- the, the shop, but somehow he recognized that uh, I was sincere and I was not a young punk to come in and uh, knock on the glass. And before you know it, I was changing water and cleaning filters, and uh, and I was sort of taken under his wing. Um, close by, there was also a, a we have a very um, robust migratory herring run in my town, and uh, I live in a coastal town south of Boston, and just watching those 
tens or hundreds of thousands of fish do their migration, my heart would just be beating. It would be like watching a wildebeest, wildebeest uh, migrations on, uh, on, on, in, in documentaries. So, um, I would pick up fish tanks and most things that could hold water, either, uh, out of people's trash cans and yard sales and, and garage sales. And before you knew it, I had, uh, multiple tanks and, um, also, living fairly close to Boston, we have a good public transportation system. And again, I'd ride that uh, Schwinn Stingray to uh, the, the a close by train station. And I would, uh, I was a spry young guy. I would duck under the turnstiles and then hop on the train. And then I'd have uh, access to the the whole world. And uh, I would take the train system to downtown Boston and uh, go right to New England Aquarium. It was just beckoning me all the time. And um, I've shared this with the aquarium, so I'm not that afraid of getting fired. But um, when I was a young kid, I, I realized when you paid to get into the aquarium, you would get uh, an ink hand stamp on uh, the back of your hand. So when I started my uh, daily adventure, I'd, I'd take a crayon or, or something like that and put a little smudge on the back of my hand enough to flash quickly. And then uh, there I'd be, I'd hear uh, the angels singing and the, the harps playing and I'd be in this, uh, this just cathedral of aquatic life and uh and it would just have so such a profound impact on me and even my aquariums in my my basement as a as a kid i would sort of arrange them uh by ge geographic ranges of where fishes occurred and i'd have my own little public aquarium that i'd sort of uh walk through and when I would look at those tanks, I, I'd be looking at the fish and, you know, how the tank is, is faring and all that. But often the tank would be sort of a, a, a crystal ball or, or a prism, a, a gateway for me to really have a deep imagination about where those fish came from. And when I was young, there were there wasn't a Animal Planet or a Discovery Channel. There were maybe a dozen really well done documentaries either by Jacques Cousteau or National Geographic. And so I would just, I'd just be glued to those. And I realized sort of in retrospect that those documentaries were, were sort of formulaic. They would spend about the first 50 minutes sharing about some just spectacular wildlife or aquatic life. And then the last 10 minutes of it would always uh, and in how um, those those situations are heading for their doom and how um, we're not caring well enough for the environment and uh, and how we might lose some of those things that we just sort of watched in the documentary. So having the live fish involved in so much of my life and then just having such a compelling experience at uh, at the New England Aquarium and watching some of those early documentaries, I had two strong passions. One was um, fish and aquariums, and the other one was conservation. So if uh, you'll indulge the self-story for a little bit longer, um, when I got older, uh, and I think when I got my first uh, tax refund, I had a, a lump sum of money, and there were some trips that people would run um, and take hobbyists to the Amazon. Um, I made one trip to Peru in 1990. There were some, some hiccups uh, on that, that trip. Um, 
but I met some great people and we all love the Amazon and we started chatting, you know, let's go to Brazil. Let's see what Brazil is like. And, and I said, okay, I'll do that. I think I was maybe about 19 or 20 and, uh, and it worked. We pulled together a trip. I made a connection with a professor at the University of Amazonas, and he was hoping to get his students out into the field. He's an ichthyologist, and he's teaching them fish biology. So we came up with a plan where us uh, gringo hobbyists would pay for the charter of a boat, and um, some of his students would come along, and they'd be able to do some of their field work, and uh, us hobbyists would get to uh, sort of uh, just... Uh, just get deep into fish paradise and snorkeling and collecting and stuff. And we went to, um, we went to the Rio Negro and this came about because, uh, there are a lot of aquarium fish that come from that region. Um, but the professor, I remember him also saying that he likes the Rio Negro better than the, the, the main body of the Amazon because the Rio Negro water is so acidic that mosquitoes can't breed in the water. So it was a, a much more uh, relaxing environment. Um, so we went to this um, city where we, us folks uh, in, in the, the northern temperate areas would consider it a, a, a town, but it was about 20,000 people. And um, this city was a hub for aquarium fish. And actually, I'll, I'll give you some of the background of, of why of how that came about. Um, Northern South America is a very low elevation in contrast to Western South America that has the Andes. And the Andes feeds uh, the Amazon River. And coming from such a high elevation and such a huge volume of water going at a high velocity, there's a lot of suspended solids. There's a lot of organic material in the water. And that gives it sort of a, a uh, uh, cafe latte kind of a, a color but all that organic matter in the water um, is the basis for the food chain and um, there are a lot of fish in the Amazon the main channel and that's where a lot of the giant fish come from um, our red tail catfish and arapaima uh, come from those regions. The Rio Negro is very, very different. It's a massive river. It dwarfs the Mississippi, and it's the largest tributary to the Amazon. And coming, again, from northern South America, from the region called the Guyana Shield, the water that feeds the Rio Negro is from all the, the rain um, up there in northern South America. But without that elevation, it leaches through the ground. And as hobbyists, we're, we, we're actually um, using that for fish keeping. A lot of us are using bags of peat and catapa leaves and different organic material to uh, change the water chemistry. And that's what happens uh, in northern South America. C coming through all the decaying organic matter, all that mulm, it releases hydronium and it, and it um, dramatically uh, lowers the pH. And a lot of the organic material is actually filtered out as it comes through the ground. So the Rio Negro has very low visibility, but surprisingly, there's, there's very little organic uh, material in the water. Um, 
So it's formed of very unusual circumstances. Very low pH, like 4.5 is not uncommon. Uh, very low conductivity, almost unmeasurable. Very low organic material and suspended solids in the water. And those conditions are just very different than the ones that I described in the Amazon. And it makes it kind of tough to be a fish uh, when there isn't a lot of food in the water. And a result of that is a lot of the fish populations have become uh, miniaturized. There's, there's, a, there's very high speciation. There's a lot of different species of fish that, that are very small. And also, in order to make a living, to carve out a little special place in the niche, there's been a lot of diversification. So, because of the topography of northern South America and how that affects the water chemistry, the Rio Negro is full of weird little fish. And we, as hobbyists, love weird little fish. So, that's where the flag got put on the map, and that's where we went, and that's what we saw. And when we got to Barcelos, I was actually shocked. I had a very moving experience that, that I want to share. Um, there are no roads that go to Barcelos. There's a small airstrip. But since the 1950s, aquarium fish in very high volumes have been coming out of Barcelos. And the connection to Barcelos is, is riverboats. There are a handful of large riverboats that travel up and down the river, bringing transporting people and bringing goods from the city of Manaus up to the, the various small communities and, and towns along the river. And during the fishing season, um, the boat would carry a lot of fish. And that first visit when I was in town, we saw that big boat, uh, almost 100 feet long, and the bottom deck full of tubs of fish stacked floor to ceiling. And each of them had about 800 cardinal tetras uh, in it. And I had this, um, I had a pretty strong reaction to that. I felt very sinful. I felt very dirty. It was just such an overwhelming amount of fish. I was, I was really, it took my breath away. And I said, oh my God, I'm part of this. I'm part of taking all of this wildlife from the Amazon rainforest for us hobbyists just to have for entertainment, for our fun. And, and, uh, and I felt very bad about the situation. And honestly, at that point, I, came to the conclusion that um, this this should be stopped. We should we should be farming these fish. We shouldn't be taking them from, from the environment. So turning the clock ahead a little bit, um, we, we actually continued doing that trip every year, and the professor kept uh, up on getting his students to that region to collect data and get a, get a better understanding of things. And that conclusion that I came to, uh, that, that, that I, I, I leapt to immediately, was wrong. It was, uh, I was 180 degrees wrong when I concluded that what I saw was a bad thing. And in fact, what I saw turned out to be an unbelievably wonderful thing, a very, very positive thing. So some of the background for that is, um, the, the very, the high volumes of fish were represented primarily by the, the cardinal tetra, about 85% of the fish, uh, we, we later found out uh, by volume, are, are cardinals. The majority of the remaining 15% are other charisons, bleeding heart tetras, um, marble hatchet fish, uh, rummy nose tetras, pencil fish. Um, in all of those groups, all those fish are, are charisons, and um, they have a very interesting uh, natural history. 
that is adapted to the environmental conditions there in the Rio Negro, not only with that weird water chemistry, but there's an extreme annual cycle of a flood and a, and a, and a drought uh, that occurs every year uh, in the Amazon. And in fact, the water level rises 10 meters and it inundates an uh, almost unfathomable amount of, uh, of tropical forest. And after the, the, the peak of the high water, the waters start to recede, and then they're limited to the, the main tributaries and the, the, the channels of the river. And that, too, um, are, are circumstances that the fish have evolved to, to adapt to. Um, and how they've done that is, is uh, in the low water season, it's, it's really rough on fish, and many of these populations go through a natural decline. They, they plummet to just a fraction of what they had been at their, at their peak. And this is, even if there were no fishermen catching fish for our hobbyists, every year a lot of these annual fishes would go through a population collapse. But a small percentage of them are capable of enduring that very stressful situation of being in the low water season with lots of predators and uh, not the best water quality, not much food, not only can they survive that, but even more remarkably, they take some cues um, when, that, when the, the rains are about to, to, to start and the, the flood will, will onset and they muster the energy from fatty reserves or whatever to, uh, to come into spawning condition. They start generating eggs. And the reason they want to be ready to, to start spawning is when the river um, floods the forest, um, uh, the fish have access to all of those resources of the recently inundated forest, all of those uh, trees and plants that have been growing and decaying and all the, all the material. So uh, the, the populations skyrocket right up again. And so the fishing takes place. Um, when the water is receding and when the fish get more concentrated. And in fact, many of them are sort of headed for their doom. And the scale of this place is something, that, again, that it's just hard to wrap your head around. Um, so the coverage of the fishers in their dugout canoes uh, in their small communities is really just a blip uh, on the map of where they're going and fishing. And the capture of those fish, um, I, I'm going to use some unusually strong language for scientists to, to say that uh, it would almost be impossible for the fishers driven by the aquarium trade to uh, have an impact on the long-term stability of the, the, the carousins just because their numbers and their range and it's, it's just so staggering. So um, the other thing that I didn't see that day in, in 1991 that I was pacing back and forth and, and, and raving uh, about, about all of these fish going out and wanting to, to sh shut it off and shift it to farming, I didn't realize that the importance of the aquarium trade to the people that lived there and um, the significance of a rural Amazonian with limited access to uh, livelihoods, to uh, jobs, to education, and, and they need to care for themselves and care for their families. 
and they have this resource of these beautiful fish and there's the global market demand for them and some entrepreneurs in the in the in the 1950s post world war 2 when suburbia was sprawling and the hobby really took off and airplanes started going to places like manaus the links were all put in place for fish to go from those remote amazonian fishing communities and end up in in parlors in New Jersey and and uh, and, and in Europe and, and in Asia, but that there was also a consistent revenue stream going into this region from the export of those fish. And um, the fishers don't get rich, but they 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 get they get some money, and some money is a lot more than no money. And in regions of biological importance, if you have poverty and lack of food security, if you have hunger and poverty, it's a really bad, a really bad recipe for the environment because people will do whatever they have to do. And I'm sure everyone listening, if you had limited options to care for yourself and your family, the environment really wouldn't rank high in your decision making. And folks don't cut down the rainforest because they hate the rainforest. They cut down the rainforest really because they, they have, they have no alternative. So in this case, in Barcelos, they have an alternative and we all play a part. We all play a big role in that because we're the ones that love these fish to the point of where we, we pay money for them. And a, a lot of us don't think a lot about it. And, you know, if we ask, where did you get your fish? You'll, you'll think it, they came from this pet store, but your fish has actually taken a long journey and your money takes that same journey in reverse and ends up with some of these fishing communities. So even though these fish have adapted to these environmental cycles of this boom and bust, there's one thing that they won't tolerate, which is um, ecological disruption. If there is clear cutting, if there's damage, even to the floodplain, not just the river, the, the, these fish won't tolerate it. They really need pristine conditions. So the, the people that live there also need these fish. And I thought I was making this great discovery of this connection between the fish, uh, you know, the hobby and the people and the, the environment. But the people that live there knew that long before I was there. And it's been a very, the, the, this basis of livelihoods and connection to the environment has been a very uh, effective driver of environmental stewardship. So they, they care greatly about the fish that are in, in demand in the market, but they know for those populations to remain viable, um, they have to maintain environmental conditions that are good for those fish. And if they, were, if they do maintain good conditions for fish, then the, the whole tropical forest ecosystem um, benefits by that. All of the uh, IUCN red-listed critically endangered species that live there, the river dolphins, the river manatees, even the jaguars, the monkeys, the parrots, they all benefit by the aquarium fish and by the aquarium hobbyists that love those fish. And uh, on a recent expedition, we had a, a carbon specialist come with us. And he did some calculations uh, of the, the, re the region where the fish come from that's protected by the, um, by the fishing communities. And he, he calculated the quantity of carbon that's, that's sequestered in those trees that aren't being cut down. He was also able to do some rough calculations on the atmospheric scrubbing that that healthy tropical forest is doing. So um, I have 
major whiplash from uh, a young fish lover uh, drawn to the Amazon and at first having this this negative perception and then realizing uh, I was just chatting with a, fe- a friend from, from the Amazon early today and uh, remembering that for, for centuries people have been drawn to the Amazon, you know, seeking cities of gold or, or tribes of women. And I, I am just so grateful that I've kind of stumbled upon this situation that has a mechanism that's demonstrated for, for generations that protects the Amazon, that provides sustainable livelihoods, that uh, is a long-term uh, alleviation of poverty for rural people, and uh, even a, an, an offset for climate change. And as a fish nerd, thinking back to those days, you know, when I had fish in my basement, I had cardinal tetras. And uh, when I would be doing water changes at the, the pet shop at the end of the week, uh, the shop owner would let me have uh, a handful of fish to bring home and, and stock my fish room. And how that path sort of led me to the situation of where um, little fish and, and the role I've ended up in can have such a meaningful impact on uh, the environment and uh, for people. And so I'm just floored by it. I didn't start with an agenda to to be a a, a global conservation activist. It was just my my passion for fish and and care of the environment and seeing this just overwhelmingly uh, compelling situation. So uh, Project Piaba, um, the local word for aquarium fish, it's more or less um, like the word minnow, little fish, is, uh, is they call the fish piabas. Um, and in fact, fishers that capture fish, sort of like a, a caballero is a horseman. The fishers that catch the fish are piaberos and piaberas. Uh, one other little good thing about uh, the fish trade is, is it's uh, there's no barriers from entry. Um, women can fish uh, just as well as men, and they get paid the same as fish for for men. So gender equality, put that on the list of uh, the good outcomes of our of our hobby. Um, so this great example, um, I started sharing this information. Um, the the largest and oldest um, uh, conservation organization in the world is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, and the IUCN is broken up into various uh, specialty groups that deal with all all forms of life. There's the freshwater fish specialist group, and um, I was invited to give a presentation at a uh, IUCN, Freshwater Fish uh, Specialist Group meeting. And I was standing at the podium and I was looking at this audience of the world's leaders in freshwater academic science, freshwater biology, freshwater conservation. And I was nervous because I was about to tell them about why I was supportive of an industry that in some years we have documented as many as 40 million individual cardinal tetras coming out of Barcelos. And uh, I knew that they would go through that same shock that I went through. But um, gave the talk, showed the slides, showed, showed the fishing community, and, and talked about how it um, it resulted in these, these beneficial outcomes. And um, I, I was expecting to get pelted uh, with shoes and, and fruit. And in fact, before I gave my talk, um, being nervous about uh, advocating for the, the wildlife trade in this case, I uh, quickly, spur of the moment, uh, asked the audience, 
folks, freshwater leaders of the world, please show me or put a hand up if you've had, ever had an aquatic pet. There were some old timers there in the, in the audience as well. It, tell me, show, put your hand up if you've had, ever had an aquarium. So again, these are the world's leaders in, in, in freshwater life. And 100% of the hands in the room went up. Every individual. And in fact, at the, uh, the, the, Meeting hall we were at at a hotel. There was a, a busboy clearing some uh, water glasses off the tables, and he put down his tray and put his hand up. And I said, "Holy cow, you guys! You know, you're all scientists, and you know, 100% is pre- pretty rare. We can't go into that now, but it makes me wonder, you know, what, how that influenced." all of you as individuals to end up in this room together today. You have all had an a, a, aquariums and you're all now leaders in, in science and conservation, but we'll look into that another day. So when I gave my talk, I think that that sort of took a little bit of the edge off uh, the shock because everybody realized that they were part of it as well. So um, there were a lot of presentations and um, it's really tragic, um, the state of um, of freshwater fish globally, they are in major peril. It's it's just so discouraging and um, it's it's so daunting. And so we do have some connections with aspects of that. Um, we're aware that a lot of our pupfish are, are threatened. We know that the, the the really catastrophic circumstances in Lake Victoria, and uh, it's just also discouraging. And a lot of us are maintaining some of these threatened species in our fish rooms and in our basement. Um, but I'm really sad that of the causes of this with the, with the, with the destruction of, of the environment. And, um, so, having given this case study to the IUCN, at the, at the end of this, this, this workshop, we had um, some processes where we tried to get focus. Where are we all, as a group, going to head our direction to try to um, turn around this tragic loss of, of freshwater life? And we listed everything that had come up in the previous days as something that could be considered an initiative, just on a big easel uh, flip chart. We had maybe a dozen and a half things listed. And each of the delegates in the, that were participating uh, at the workshop, each were given, you, you were allowed three marks. And you could go up to the flip chart and give three marks to your, your favorite um, initiatives, those that you thought had the most hope for having the most meaningful impact, or you could give all of your marks to, to a single initiative that you really wanted to uh, advocate for. And um, again, to my shock, uh, at the end of this, um, Aquarium Fisheries re- received more marks than every other initiative combined. And uh and again, I uh, sort of took my breath away, like, holy cow, I went into this conference ready to be demonized as, you know, the evil wildlife uh, advocator. And in the end, um, that was a turning point. And uh, I've shared this with a lot of friends in the industry, publishers and people that in the not too distant past, um, people would look at the aquarium trade as, quote, the problem. But in my opinion, at that IUCN meeting, it was changed to the solution. And uh, again, I was just so grateful that I was able to just, uh, just, just, just happen into the situation and, and observe it and uh, understand how special it was and share that not only with partners 
in the aquarium hobby and in the aquarium industry, but working at a, a, a academic institution, a public aquarium, I, I, I work a lot with the, with, uh, the academic world and also the mainstream conservation world. And this example of our hobby having these benefits has brought together these groups, um, the fish hobbyists and the aquarium trade folks, the academic researchers, and the conservation people now seeing this, and um, again, in the not too distant past, they wouldn't have looked at those other groups as um, as as collaborators or, or even friends. But now arms are getting locked to uh, to say, "Wow, the the aquarium hobby is really spectacular." So, um, turning the clock ahead a little bit more, um, Project Piaba, this case study in the Rio Negro. Uh, it was quite inspirational and it showed such hope that I was, uh, I was just very grateful that the Freshwater Fish Group asked me to establish a, a subgroup within the IUCN, uh, called the Home Aquarium Fish Subgroup. And that entity, uh, we still look at Project Piaba as the spearhead, but we're looking throughout the tropics for other regions where people living in areas of biological importance are connected to environmental welfare via their connection with aquarium fish. And beyond that, we're looking for, for places where it could occur. A lot of aquarium fish, there are no longer fisheries for some species because they have been um, domestically produced for uh, so many generations and they're very efficiently farmed in, um, in aquarium fish production uh, facilities. but it's time to give some of those species another look at. Should we consider fostering some extractive fisheries in, in order to provide livelihoods, alleviate poverty, take the edge off the drivers of uh, some of these destructive decision-making uh, processes? And, and you know, sh should we consider this a, an instrument, a tool that we can use to have all this good stuff come out of? And um, so that's something that I'm looking at, as a hobbyist, as, as the future, we have challenges that we're facing. Um, animal rights groups are getting very powerful and very effective. We know that Hawaii just got shut down uh, for, for its aquarium fishery, and um, that trend is, is real, and it's a real threat. And uh, I just don't want to be contrarian for the for the sake of, of argument, I, I, I truly care about the potential threat to aquarium fishes. I, I imagine if uh, that dream I had in 1990 of saying this fishery needs to be shut down, we should be farming these fish, that would have been catastrophic. For those people to abruptly have the basis of their livelihood stopped, they would have been forced to shift uh, to other to other means, and in fact, we've we've asked them that. Um, a lot of our Brazilian team have we've done a lot of interviews with fishers and asked what what do you think people would would shift to if uh, if you couldn't sell fish anymore? And the responses are typically um, um, timber harvest, gold mining, cattle ranching, and uh, and urban migration. So um, that's very scary. And it gives me just this huge sense of uh, urgency and responsibility to do what's necessary to help this fishery thrive. And in uh, that 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 dream I had in 1991 uh, actually came true. In the um, for uh, maybe 10 years ago, it became possible um, 
Well, for neon tetras, uh, there's, there's a very little neon tetra wild fishery because neons coming from the Peruvian Amazon, their environmental conditions are much closer to conditions on fish farms and much more suitable circumstances for them to be produced in commercial quantities. So uh, neon tetras have been quite commonly produced. But the cardinals coming from um, such acid, uh, low conductivity, such weird water, they really did not uh, readily reproduce and, and it wasn't really cost effective to try to farm cardinals. But a lot of aquaculture technology has advanced. You can now use hormones to, uh, to, to force fish into uh, spawning condition and then you can selectively breed a, a strain of the fish that are tolerant of the conditions on your farm and uh, you've got a beautiful little red and blue fish that you can produce. So um, I'm very worried and it's actually counterintuitive, you know, hearing a conservation biologist uh, expressing a concern about the, the farming of fish in captivity for the pet trade. You would think that that's where uh, the conservation direction would lead. But in this case, it worries me because if the farm fish take over the market for the wild fish, then that's going to be game over for these fishing communities and the, and the system will break down in the Amazon. So, um, and that's real. Um, the farm fish are produced in captivity. They're conditioned in, in water that's very similar to what the trade uh, has, and uh, they're raised on prepared foods. Uh, the wild fish, though, they're collected from the wild, and they go through a lot of different stages of handling. And um, in, in the end, uh, there is some trauma that goes on. Um, the process of capture, starting right at the beginning, the fishers um, wield their, their, their paddle from their dugout canoe, and they'll chase a, a group of cardinal tetras into their net, uh, a hand net, a big bowed uh, piece of wood with mosquito sc screening um, attached to it in, with, with, a, with a belly in it. And so they'll lift their net from the water and they'll, they'll scoop them with a gourd and they'll put the fish um, in a, a plastic lined um, basket in the back of their canoe. And this all happens very fast. And if you look at the fish in the plastic lined basket, they look fine. They look great. But when that lifted, when that water, when the net is lifted from the water and those cardinals are sort of dancing up and down on the mesh, damage happens. They fishes protective coatings. Their first two lines of protection are their mucus coating that hobbies know a lot about. And, and fish actually, their whole bodies are covered in a skin, um, over their scales and epithelium. And that, that's what protects them from a lot of potential potentially um, damaging elements uh, in the environment. So flopping on the mesh can, uh, can damage the mucus and, um, and, and tear the, the epithelium. And also uh, when a fish goes into a, a condition of stress, um, there are some adaptive processes to deal with stressors, but if the stress condition is prolonged, it becomes um, maladaptive. It becomes... Um, it, um, they, their immune system uh, loses its capacity to uh, to function as it should fully. So subtle things and observations like that have led us that are concerned about the welfare of this fishery to develop um, best handling practices. And this is one of the one of the big um, action arms of Project Piaba. 
as part of our group, um, we have one of the world's leaders in aquatic uh, fish veterinary medicine, Dr. Tim Miller Morgan. He runs the uh, aquarium science program um, at um, Oregon Coast Community College. He, he actually they teach uh, professional aquarist. Um, techniques, but he's um, been down with us on many trips, and we've made a lot of observations of um, different sources of where stress could occur, and then uh, viable, uh, realistic ways that those um, techniques could be adapted to uh, lessen stress, um, and um, that brought us to uh, developing these, these best handling practices. So um, a group in the pet trade uh, was very supportive of this. Uh, everybody loves the story. They um, funded a program that we called Train the Trainers. Uh, Dr. Tim and I, knowing that um, it really wasn't feasible for he and I, or even appropriate culturally for he and I, to be standing in front of groups of fishers and, and telling them how to fish. Um, so Project Piava has a good group of volunteers in, in Manaus, um, and uh, none of them are veterinarians or clinicians, but these are all well-educated people, and uh, they we, we put on a very intensive week-long workshop, uh, again, called Train the Trainers, and we shared all of this information at a very technical and, uh, and detailed level, but we left them with uh, all of the presentations on thumb drives. We left them with some tablet computers and digital project projectors and all sorts of material for them to then take and take all this technical information and uh, adapt it to be uh, most uh, appropriate and effective to be delivered to rural fishing communities. They didn't really have to show a lot of the slides of cross sections of, uh, of gill squashes and, and stains of cells, but it gave our trainers a very deep foundation of the understanding of, 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 of stress and a very good basis for them to talk to fishers. And going back to the example of the capture technique, one um, simple component of best handling practices we, we had also observed that some fishers did not lift the net entirely from the water. Some fishers would leave a little belly of water, and with their gourd, they would scoop um, the, 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 the target species, whatever they were after, in, a, in, in water. And the fish would stay in a cushion of water. Then they would turn and depress their gourd in the water that was in the plastic lined basket and invert the gourd and remove it. And the fish uh, had minimal to no contact with any physical structure at all. So just that tiny little change. And the fishers that lifted their net from the water weren't doing it because they were careless or sloppy or fast. It's, be it's because when the fish went into their holding container, they looked great. And when they were brought into town and sold, they would be paid the market price and, uh, and the fish would look just fine. But as hobbyists, we know that a fish that incurs stress like that, it, it's going to put it at a, a greatly increased risk of uh, developing a, a health problem down the chain. And so by us being able to observe all the way from the fish in the wild, the fish at the point of capture, and then have experience uh, seeing them at the export, the import facilities, the retailers, and in our home tanks, you know, it, it let us focus in on, on, on the important things. So... Um, one small aspect is to is to have the trained fishers uh, not lift the net from the water, keep the fish in a cushion of of water. So 
again, going back to our strategic plan, two, two branches. One is the handling, the quality of, of the fish, their conditioning and suitability, um, and value, uh, for the, for the trade and even, um, the trade chain logistics about even flight connections for minimizing the amount of time fish are in boxes. Um, and, uh, in acclimation for pH, um, the, the well water around Manaus has a pH of about six to 6.5. And so that makes it possible to take these fish that are very, in very acid water, um, and adapt them, acclimate them up to a higher pH. Fish nutrition is a big subject. It's difficult to import, um, uh, quality and appropriate feeds into Manaus. And in the tropical circumstances, um, very special care has to be taken to how those feeds are handled and stored and, and administered. So right there, if they have um, the right feeds at the right times, it's really going to, um, to have an impact on the fish welfare. So if we can level the playing field and have the farm fish just as suitable for trade or even better, have the wild fish in better condition than the, than the farm fish right there. We have, a um, we've made a, a, a great improvement, but knowing that the fish keeping community, the hobbyists, you folks care a lot about the environment. If we can identify these fish as being, um, a benefit to the environment and, um, I stop short, I, or I've given a lot of thought to the word, Sustainable. A lot of fisheries uh, consider the, the the holy grail to be able to demonstrate that they're a sustainable fishery. And it, sustainable, there's a lot to be said for it, but it means it's, it's sort of it's benign. It can be continued without doing significant damage if, if it can be sustained. This fishery, though, that word sustainability falls very short of what's going on here. Um, this fishery is a driver of 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 conservation, of poverty alleviation. So we don't do it justice by referring to it as just a, a sustainable fishery. The best I've been able to come up with is um, is a beneficial fishery, environmentally and socioeconomically beneficial, kind of clunky, unfortunately. So if we can make that aware to the hobbyists and even some of our commercial partners, if folks in the trade that have realized, you know, what what happens when when something like Hawaii happens, how damaging that is and how strong and formidable the forces are and how that could really overwhelm the hobby in, in quite a damaging way. Um, we know that things have to change, change in a good way for the hobby to, uh, to, to, to navigate these challenges. So, uh, part of the dream is to connect the impact of that purchasing decision when a, when a hobbyist buys wild cardinal tetras. I, I want them to not only be assured that the fish are, uh, they've been handled in a, in a very good way uh, with minimal stress and loss and trauma. They've been conditioned to thrive in their home aquarium. But I want hobbyists to realize the impact they've had on the people and the environment. Uh, in these days where you can track your shipment from Amazon uh, for what station it's going through and uh, we're, how it's coming to you, this, this isn't so far-fetched. Um, as we've trained the fishers, we, we've helped them register in a fishers association. So we, we know a lot of the fishers. We have them registered. We know where they fish. 
And so um, here's part of the dream, is to um, have the fish traceable back to the fish collector, to have a code associated with that fisher and have that code stay with that group all the way to the pet store and have a sticker on our tank, perhaps, with our with our slogan, Project Piaba's slogan, buy a fish, save a tree, um, and a unique tracking number and maybe a QR code or in a, in a, a numerical number so that when the person buys the fish, they can go home. And um, one subject that it, people in the industry, old timers, uh, say is maybe a cause for decrease in recruitment of young people, new hobbyists into the hobby is, is social media. Um, people turning to social media instead of, instead of fish keeping. But in this case, I think that social media and podcasts and uh, YouTube are, are very powerful uh, in the hobby. So you get your fish, you get your tracking number, you go home and you go online uh, to a website related to the program and you have a, a challenge page where you put in your tracking number, your zip code. I want to know how many fish you bought, how much you paid for the fish. And uh, when you hit enter, if that lot of fish was shipped to your region in a reasonably recent amount of time, you're then emailed a link with pictures of the fisher that caught your fish. Uh, and since you've put in your zip code, you can have a Google Earth flyover that will take you from your house to the stream where your fish came, came from. There can be thumbnails of of uh, IUCN red-listed species that, that live in that region that are benefiting by your choice to be a hobbyist and to choose those fish. You can have a bio about about the fisher that caught your fish and what fishing means to him and his family or her and her family and what they would do if there weren't people like you around anymore that were, that were buying the fish and, and keeping that revenue stream uh, coming in. And uh, for me as a hobbyist and as a young kid looking in my tanks as that prism and, and dreaming about Borneo and, uh, and, and Indonesia and the Amazon, that doesn't have to be as much of a daydream anymore. With with social media and the internet, we can we can look into the eyes of the person that we're connected with uh, at the ver very beginning of that fish's entry into the hobby, and uh, and we can learn more about that region. I I, I daydream about a, a a plug strip for your aquarium where you plug in the different components and you connect to it via Wi-Fi from your smartphone and you give it the, 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 the GPS coordinates of uh, the region where your fish came from. And uh, when the sunlight, when the sun comes up and over the stream where your fish came from, your LED lights uh, gradually come on simulating uh, uh, the sun coming up. If it's a stormy day in your region, LEDs can now uh, dim and, and, and brighten and you can have a live simulation of conditions going on in the wild. And uh, it's not just a box of fish anymore. When you, when you look at your tank, it is so it's really a very special thing and it has impacts and connections that, uh, that, that didn't exist. And if the, if the hobby stays how it is, kind of how it was, not a lot has changed since the 1950s. But I think we have opportunities to really add a level of depth of, uh, of what the hobby uh, means to folks. Um, so thank you for your patience and letting me 
letting me uh, talk on like this. I, I should take a break and take some questions just to make sure. <laughs> Scott, dude, that, that is so awesome. No, I mean, um, your knowledge, your experiences in the hobby, your experiences as a conservationist who's gone to these places where our fish come from, the work that you've done with Project Piaba, um, you deserve the ability to take 45 minutes or 50 minutes straight and just share that and not have you know some novice like me come in and interrupt with questions. Because to be perfectly honest, you had already answered many of my, my kind of follow-up questions that were in my head um, as you talked. So and I, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, clearly you've, you've done these kinds of presentations before where you've, you know, shared this really good information and you've pull, pulled out the pertinent facts. Um, you know, I, I guess if I were to say something, well, first would be to go all the way back to your origin story, that it's so cool that you're like this kid outlaw rule breaker hobbyist, that you're skipping turnstiles on the public transit and you're, you know, fudging a, a stamp to get back into the aquarium. Uh, I, I think that's so cool that you've got this kind of rule breaker streak um, in your backstory. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to, um, you know, to your talk. Uh, on this episode a couple times just to really make sure that I clean everything out and I'm sure that my listeners will do the same thing as well. Um, it, you know, more recently you talked about the ability, the traceability to go back and see where your fish came from. And I don't think that that's unprecedented. I know that um, Starbucks and and companies like Levi, so Starbucks for where their coffee beans are being sourced from, like they want to have it built into their supply chain, this amount of traceability that as a consumer, we can go back and see that these are sustainably um, grown, sustainably harvested, um, just sustainable products. And same thing with Levi's and cotton. Um, cotton production, cotton growing can be something that is very um, hard on the environment. And Levi's wants to make sure that their cotton is coming from sources that are, are are engaging in sustainable practices. So again, you know, the ability to go back and see that these cardinal tetras that I bought, um, you know, we see unboxings that fish stores do online, and they'll say, oh yeah, we got a bunch of wild cardinal tetras. Well, I'd have to assume that they came out of this, you know, they're, they're going to come out of this region that you just spent time talking about, and they're going to come from Manassas and all that good stuff. But to be able to build it in that on that tank, you know, there's a QR code that you can scan, and there's information on your receipt where you go back home and you plug that information in and you can see you know the 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 actual person that caught your fish and the part of the the rio negro the stream that it came from um you know the technology is there right it's just a matter of putting the pieces in and really building that that visibility yeah it is there and uh and i'm really heartened by seeing examples of the technology uh coming about with things like 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 food and and like you say coffee and stuff but i'm especially excited about this with fish because fish is such a passion in 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 people's minds those of us that are engaged in it um if we're uh eating a a, a cheeseburger from a locally sourced um farm you know, that's good, and the, and the cheeseburger is gone. But to have a living organism, you know, and, and to have it part of a hobby, which is uh, the dominant thought of so many of us, it's what we think first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And to add a depth to that, I think that the traceability possibilities are going to resonate and add so much more uh, value um to, to live fish keeping. So uh, I'm, I'm very worried about, uh, you know, uh, being a human, being alive at this time and, and talking about such um, 
uh, scary things like climate change and all that. It all sounds overwhelming, but um, but you know, what do you know? Our our favorite little thing, the fish hobby, can be uh, can be something that we can all engage in. That's going to have a very meaningful impact. Yeah, and I agree. And you know, you talked about how do we change the hobby, and you know, it's it's the perception of a home aquarist. Like, how do we go? Um, beyond somebody that just you know picks up some fish to throw in their tank and they enjoy it in their home to uh, really fostering that appreciation for the fish, building the knowledge and the desire to want to learn more about where they're coming from and the dire situations that they're facing. And I've had Greg Steves on to talk about the situation of Lake Victoria. And I've had uh, Pam Chim, she was on recently and talked about Lake Tanganyika and, and Jose Gonzalez talking about the situation facing those pupfish and the Gadeads in Mexico. And there are, you know, and it's just all across the world. It's not just in those specific areas. It's also in um, Southeast Asia and India and all of these places where our, our beloved fish come from, uh, their home waters are being... Uh, you know they're they're being uh, they're they're being put in jeopardy of you know destruction, and so sure we may think ah oh, okay but they're farming those that's fine. Well, what happens to the point where you know the genetic uh, they're not able to diversify the genetics in these farms, or you know some uh, strain of bacteria or virus is able to evolve in these farm conditions that completely wipes out their stock, and now all of a sudden you know cardinal tetras if they're able to get those breeding now they no longer exist at all right or pea puffers or you, you take your fish you take your ornamental fish um and, and that happens to them right like that sure maybe that doesn't happen in our lifetime but i don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to think that such a scenario could in fact play out and then all of a sudden you know we're left with two or three species in the hobby or just something some very pathetic number that you know without the diversity of fishes we lose all of these people that would want to keep various types of fishes like you look you've got people that are all about bettas you've got people that are all about plecos that have fish rooms dedicated to these single types of fish um, and, and it's just very devastating to think what would happen if something like that played out in the future Yes, yeah, for sure. And uh, if conditions come about as you describe, if these fish are no longer viable in the in in the in the world, I mean that in itself makes us sad. But just imagine that world. What an awful world it would be. And uh, with with this IUCN group, I, I'm I'm very encouraged. If you look at beautiful fish, even even if the species has been cultivated in the farm, but if you trace that fish back to where it comes from in the wild. It's a beautiful place. It's an important place. And um, so p part of the strategy with this, this IUCN group is, is to look at the groups of fishes that can sustain a, a high-volume offtake. And there are so many, the resboras, the barbs, the, the danios, uh, so many of those fishes uh, are just so resilient, and a lot of them come in uh, areas of uh, of. of of great importance. Uh, one thought is actually to work with the, the zoo and public aquarium community. There's the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA, uh, in North America, and we have 180 million visitors a year. And um, all of the people that choose to go to a zoo or an aquarium, by definition, they're attracted to wildlife. And probably a small percentage of them are fish keepers. But zoos and aquariums are, have incredibly compelling and uh, high-impact exhibits uh, these days. It's, uh, visitors have a very profound experience. It's also not free, unless you're, you're me, as my, my rebellious uh, young kids who sneak into places. <laughs> it's, it's not cheap to, uh, to get in. 
So these 180 million people that are drawn to wildlife also have disposable income, and they've chosen to use that disposable income to satisfy their, their draw to nature. So I conclude by that that the zoo and aquarium uh, visiting population is a very uh, target-rich audience. I think that those folks represent a disproportionately high group of people that would be inclined um, to, to enter the hobby. So uh, I try to share that with my colleagues um, within the zoo and aquarium community that, folks, we could have a very powerful new instrument here where our visitors that have such an incredible experience with nature through our exhibits, we can give them a very specific thing that they can follow through and they can do. And even though in my case, they might be standing on Central Wharf on a snowy day in Boston, they can have an impact on the on on how rural Amazonians value uh, the environment. And so the, the, the another one of these uh, daydream schemes is to uh, maximize the amount of zoos and aquariums showcasing aquarium fish that have been sourced in ways that have these uh, these benefits and even putting in whatever mechanisms mechanisms we can to maximize the likelihood of, of follow through and again it might seem strange for a conservation biologist to really be mustering all the resources you know that are that are available at my hands to try to uh, inspire the next generation of hobbyists but there's there's a reason to it there's a method to it so um, perhaps uh, if we're showcasing some aquarium fish, we have a QR code there that the zoo or aquarium visitor uh, snaps and they get the background information. But not only that, they might get a text message a few days later um, saying, hey, remember that fish tank thing you were looking at? And even some of the manufacturers could put a discount uh, coupon on it or, or some little motivators to get them to uh, – retain that initial inspiration and then and then follow through. And for zoos and aquariums, we can look at this as a as a really tactical, a, a strategic means for us to achieve our goals of protecting the environment by maximizing these revenue streams that, that go to these these fishing communities. And we have a, a very effective uh, very effective circumstances for doing that. And we consider our wins in this, we measure it by how much of the environment we protect. But if we are inspiring people to enter fish keeping at a time when there's the ferocity of animal rights groups wanting to, to, to burn down our shops, if suddenly the mainstream scientific, academic, conservation community, the zoos and aquariums are spotlighting this facet of fish keeping to these audiences, then uh, it makes it an irresistible business plan for them to embrace. And, and, I, and I'm not being diabolical when I do this. I have dear friends that are in the industry and in the trade that I care a lot about, and I, and I see this as a as a path uh, for them to again navigate these challenges and come out with the hobby in what I consider these challenging times. Have it come out stronger, exciting, more fun in getting young people uh, involved in aquatic life and to keep filling those meeting rooms like that group of IUCN scientists that have uh, have been inspired to dedicate their lives to, uh, to aquatic conservation. So um, 
I do sort of wring my hands a little bit and have a little bit of a, a Dr. Evil feel where I'm going <laughs> to, I have these aspirations to take over the world with Pretty Little Fish, but uh, we're, we're only using our powers for good in, uh, in this case. Yeah, and, and I think to your earlier point, you know, our, our society, at least here in the United States, I think with the consumer dollars, with the way we spend our money, that we already have this bias towards wanting to do things that are, are viewed as more green and that we want to do things that are sustainable and we want to do things that are good for the environment. Um, I would almost challenge, uh, you know, the, you know, the threat of maybe being flamed by some of the audience, though, that um, we just need to, we, we need to use our platforms like this podcast or like YouTubers, and I'll get into a challenge on them later. Um, but to, to try to direct the general public to the causes that are the lowest hanging fruit or the most dire. And so I'll go back, and I don't know what your thought is on this, Scott, but um, the Starbucks ban on plastic straws, or the, the, the city of Seattle where I'm from, the ban on, on, on plastic straws. Now, was that the most beneficial, like is the return on investment for all of that public effort and outcry, is that nearly as beneficial as if we had that same public outcry to get people into the hobby and to understand and understand and know what could potentially happen in the Rio Negro region if we lost this particular ornamental fishery, um, you know, and, and, and the ability for through what, what sounds like it's bad science to have the Hawaii fishery shut down. Um, that decision, you know, being kind of made emotionally and with, you know, one study that maybe isn't the most accurate, um, you know, how do we, how do we direct the public, um, you know, influence, not mob mentality, but the ability to, to just, you know, everybody rally around a cause to this particular cause. Yeah, I, I think that the, the innate, sometimes when I've, um, given, this talk at fish clubs, um, before folks knew about Project Piaba, uh, I would ask the audience, uh, again, to show hands, um, how many people in the audience, uh, feel it's best, uh, from a conservation perspective to get wild fish, show your hands, and how many want farm fish, and, uh, show your hands, and I'll say, well, why do you, why do you want farm fish? And they'll say, because I care about the environment. And that's the important thing. If they say, you know, I care about the environment, and if that's, the, 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 the background, if that's a, a driving force within, you know, a serious influence in their, their fish keeping hobby, then boy, have we got fish for you that, you know, are not just uh, a benign alternative. It's a, it's, we, we really can be the cavalry. We can, we can band together and now we have mechanisms uh, like social media and YouTube to reach a lot of our individuals that are, that are at home, uh, caring for their fish, but also having that same daydream of looking at their aquarium and thinking about the environment. And, uh, so I hope to, um, blow the bugle and rally the, the troops to do a call to arms. And, um, we're still working at getting these fish identified at the retail level. We, we have progress. I, I know it takes time and it takes, uh, fortitude and commitment. It's, it's, it's not, it's not easy, but we're getting there and, uh, we will have these fish available to the retailer and we will have them identified as being a benefit to the environment. And even hobbyists, I, I have confidence that haven't heard this hour and a half long discussion about the background of it, even if at, at the point of sale, I think they'll get it and I think they'll respond to it. So uh, I, I'm op optimistic that we can take our, our, our shared passion for fish and the environment and have uh, some very, very good things happen. So, 
Scott, I'd say as a next step for the listeners that, um, you know, if, if this conversation alone wasn't enough and they want to they want to learn even more about this this region and uh, Project Piaba, uh, there's a book that we, you and I talked about a little bit earlier that I said that I had read. And, you know, it is geared towards a younger reader, but I think it serves as a wonderful intro into um, the work that Project Piaba is doing. It's called Amazon Adventure. How Tiny Fish Are Saving the World's Largest Rainforest. Um, I picked a, a copy up from the local library and I rented it there. You can find it on Amazon. But it is a, a wonderful, wonderful, um, you know, fully illustrated, beautiful color photo book that talks about Project Piaba, that talks about um, where these fish come from. It talks about the Rio Negro and the wonderful culture of these, these um, ornamental fish catchers that they have and their festivals that I would say every listener out there, if you haven't already read this, you should read it. And you're like, well, it's for young readers. Well, if you're a busy person like me and, you know, you don't have time to dedicate to, you know, Scott's scientific research papers that he wrote for his thesis and all this other stuff that are, you know, really, really in depth, this is something that you can pick up and probably blow through in 30 minutes and become and and come away so much more aware of what's going on there. And that could just be one of the first stepping stones that you take to being more involved and more informed about this. So, um, you know, that that's kind of my first step. The second is going to be what I was saying, the challenge to YouTubers and other people of social media. If, if you're getting any type of notoriety from this hobby, if you're a quote unquote fish tuber, my challenge to you is that you need to showcase Project Piaba, you need to showcase IUCN um, in any of your format and any of the videos that you do. Uh, you know, sure, it's great that you do product reviews or unboxings or you do live streams. Uh, I know people are always looking for content and you may not be able to get Scott in person to come on your show and do a live stream, but I think you can do some research on Project Piaba. You can do some research on any of the topics that, that Scott has talked about. And, and inform your audience, right? Like if you're doing anything and you consider yourself a fish tuber, you know, you owe it to this hobby to put out at least one video. Like one video is my challenge to you, right? Like you'll do lemons for leukemia, which is wonderful. You'll do, you know, various other challenges that may be serious or silly in nature. And that's fantastic. But my Aquarius podcast challenge to you is to research Project Piaba, to research the situation that, that Scott has talked about and put out a video inform your listeners, you know, every single one of you out there that has a social media platform should be using it um, to make sure that the hobby stays around and that these fish are being protected in their native environments, and that we have them around for generations and generations to come. Man, I love the the fish tube uh, challenge idea. Um, Project Piaba does have a, a Facebook uh, page. And uh, uh, we're, we're so uh, was spread so thin it it, it isn't maintained uh, uh, as to what it the circumstances justify and the opportunity would allow but that would give us uh, some great opportunity and I'd love to share your videos on Project Piava's Facebook page yeah so there you go link it to uh, go after you make your video you post it up on YouTube send it over to uh, Scott via the Project Piava Facebook page I'll have links in this show that uh, that we can have that on there and then there's kind of a third thing and I want uh, Scott I want to let you talk about uh, you know, the, the idea of a GoFundMe and some of these projects that Project Piaba has going on in the immediacy. So if, if you're now saying, okay, I'm somebody that I kind of know about Project Piaba, I really like it. Um, I'm maxed out on the number of fish that I can buy to my, uh, add into my tank. So I really can't go and buy any of these wild cardinals, but what else can I do? You know, like here's my money in my hand. What can I do with it? So Scott, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. This is something we were chatting about just before we started recording. And, uh, uh, this is something just being hatched out, but, um, two immediate things. Um, 
that we could use some support on. And um, I'm blowing the bugle here to to, to rally rally the cavalry. Um, I have described why uh, the fishery represents uh, does not represent a threat to the long-term stability of cardinal tetras. That is a quite bold statement, and um, we do have uh, good basis for making that statement. But we want to take it further um, because of the, the 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 flood and the variations in the annual cycles. It's actually scientifically it's it's very difficult to do a hardcore scientific assessment of the cardinal tetra population in a way that's going to yield a clear picture and a, a good, sound, uh, peer-reviewed, defensible way to back up that statement. And, um, and, and I want that. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had a very fortunate thing um, happen. Uh, one of Project Piaba's uh, partners is uh, IMPA, the National Institute of Amazon Research. It is the heart of, uh, of science in the Amazon. It's in Manaus, Brazil, and it is where all the cutting-edge, most advanced uh, science on, on Amazon research and conservation is happening. And uh, a couple of the, the researchers let me know that they recently accepted a, a PhD candidate um, to work on a component of uh, of producing this um, this very sound work to happen, and uh, a few years ago we had Brazil's leading fisheries biologist come with us uh, to the Amazon and to have a firsthand um, um, opportunity to see these conditions. And he's a brilliant man, and he's on the cutting edge of, uh, of fisheries assessment methodology and protocols. And he came up with a way, a series of, of different uh, sets of data that would be collected that when uh, analyzed properly would, would give us those very sound results. So under his guidance and with these two uh, principal investigators at, at INPA, this PhD student is going to um, start that study. And uh, he's a young guy. He's from the region. And I'm so thrilled that he's going to do this work. I have full confidence that he's going to uh, do great diligence. And I'm very happy to have the opportunity to support and do capacity building for the local uh, Brazilian Amazonian scientific community. Um, that's where science should happen. And that's who it should be happening with. Uh, but this young guy um, could use uh, some support. Uh, one other topic is we're getting pretty close to rolling out and identifying these beneficial cardinal tetras um, available retail. And what I want is for every fish that comes out associated with this program to have been captured and handled by fishers that get trained to become professionally fishers, professional fishers and get registered in the Fishers Association. We had that intense week-long workshop for about a dozen and a half of our team in Brazil. They then go out to these communities and uh, and literally hold PowerPoints in the jungle and talk about uh, these training methods. Those folks have expenses to uh, for their travel and uh, and to get out there and do these 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 trainings. It's not a lot of money. So what we chatted about before we started recording is to possibly set up a, a, a GoFundMe to uh, reach out to the fish keeping community to uh, try to generate the funds that's going to end up in um, 
in producing a really sound uh, scientific paper? And then uh, how cool is it to work directly with the Amazon fishers to, to communicate back to them, this is what happens when you lift the net out of the water? And they say, oh, now I know. So uh, and it would be especially cool if I can share this with some of my colleagues in the in the mainstream conservation world and the academics, that it was the fish hobbyists, it was the people that care about these fish that rallied and responded more than just rhetorically, where they where they committed, they showed their commitment to conservation by by helping uh, fund things like this. So uh, stay tuned. I'm going to ask for some help from from some young folks that are better at this than me. But uh, uh, we might just set up a GoFundMe and work with uh, some of our partners and supporters in uh, in in podcasts and and and. Uh, fish tubers to uh, get the word out to the community. Well, well, Scott, I can tell you that uh, you will have my support both financially when you do launch that as well as using my platform to make sure that people know about that. So make sure we stay in contact and I'll make sure that that link goes out and um, you know, try to try to fit an announcement in like in one of the, the show intros in the future that it is now up. And even if it's not GoFundMe, if you guys were able to set something up so people can directly contribute to you so that way the full percentage goes directly to Project Piaba, um, I'm willing to support it financially. So you just let me know. And Scott, I would like to say that I'm going to have make sure I have all the links uh, of everything we've talked about in the show notes so people can can check it out. Um, and you know, this has been an absolutely fantastic experience that you've come on and shared so much wonderful information that um, I guarantee people are gonna have to go back and listen to this two or three times over just to glean all of the wonderful things and, and the knowledge that you shared with us. So thank you very much for coming on today, Scott. Thank you, and uh, thank you all for for your your shared passion with uh, aquatic life. And I'm I'm just so happy to to share this story and this scary environmental stuff going on. But folks, you know there is hope, and there's stuff that uh, that you folks are uniquely powerful to to do. So thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.